This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join me. Today, my guest is Jeff Goins. Jeff and I met online some years ago, and it's a conversation that's been going on ever since. Sometimes conducted via email, other times in blog comments or on the phone, our topics ranged over the many issues involved in forging a successful writing career. The best-selling author of five books, including The Art of Work and Real Artists Don't Starve, Jeff is also the host of the podcast, The Portfolio Life, as well as a much sought after speaker and coach and ghostwriter. We'll get to all of that, but first, let's say hello. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Hi, Marion. I'm great. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted. We go back a long time. And these days, I know you're doing a lot of ghostwriting, you're podcasting, you're supporting and encouraging and educating a group of people who have signed on to work with you. You have a wife, two kids, a life. And you call a this a portfolio, a, a, a life. This is your life. And you call this a portfolio life, a liberating phrase. I I really, if ever I've heard one, that is what many writers do and what we can relate to. So what do you mean by this, this portfolio life? This was a term that I heard from a guy who heard it from a guy who heard it from a guy. <laughs> and my friend... <laughs> uh, but I was, um, around the time that I met you, and I'm mm -hmm. sure you recall this version of me, I'm, I'm not too different from that person, but at that time, I was especially angsty about finding my way in the world. And I wanted to know what I was supposed to be doing. And at the time, I was running an online business. I was doing this online marketing thing. And I was also writing books and spreading ideas. And they felt all very different and sort of disparate forms of being and making my way in the world. And, you know, I had a, a writing mentor in you where um, it was all about the craft and all about getting it right and saying what needed to be said. And then there were, you know, frankly speaking, all these opportunities to make money and do these things online that weren't necessarily unethical. It was just a different uh, way of thinking and working. And and I was trying to figure it all out because I was good at all of it. I was good at the marketing. I was good at the business. I was pretty good at the writing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, I, I'm just trying to figure it out. Am I, the, am I the marketer? You know, Am I the business guy? <laughs> or am I the writer? And right. he says, why, why can't you be all three of those? And yeah. uh, I should have known this guy, his name is Keith. He is a poet who uh, works as a high-level executive. He's a marketer. Uh, and he works in the medical industry. Uh, and he loves Japanese culture and hiking, right? So he's got mm -hmm. this marketer mind. He works in the medical field, writes poetry, and loves you know Eastern philosophy and culture. And he says, why don't you just try to live a portfolio life? 
And he said, I got this term from so-and-so. And then I went and talked to so-and-so and, and, yeah. and on and on it went. But the term is actually was coined by a business philosopher, uh, an Irish gentleman uh, in the 80s named Charles Handy. Uh, and he wrote in a book called The Age of Unreason, um, he predicted that in the future we would all be living portfolio lives. And it starts with the idea of a portfolio career that instead of having one 40-year career, you'll have mm -hmm. four or five 10-year uh, careers. And he said this is something that we need to embrace. So in the 80s, he was essentially predicting uh, the gig economy. And so I think of a portfolio life as an embracing of a reality that is true for many of us today. And I think for many a creative professional, uh, the most fulfilling way to live and work. Absolutely. And looked at through this lens when we met, I was ready to acknowledge that I too had a portfolio life. It's just when you started using the phrase, mm. I went, oh, yes. And I remember I sent you a copy of my book on how to write memoir and we began exchanging yeah. services. And you had several yeah. skills and I had several skills, but you gave me the skills to develop a multi-platform online life. And I coached you through some writing. So what yeah. were we doing in that exchange? What lessons can you give to the writers listening in that, that you get from that? What were we, what were we actually exchanging there? What was I receiving? Mm -hmm. What were you receiving? I was giving you, well, I was giving you some writing mm -hmm. coaching, and you were giving me these online skills. But it's really, I mean, I think it's a form of networking, right? It's just a, mm -hmm. I think that word just gets such a bad rap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like to say, um, you know, network is like a bad verb, but a great noun. <laughs> and what I mean by that is like, you don't network with somebody. Let's network, you know. You Let's build a network. network. A network is a Right. <laughs> it's it's an it's you know it's it's an absurd bastardization of a of a good word. A network mm -hmm. is is a connection of people, right? Nodes, mm -hmm. right? A network. And um yeah, I think um what goes around comes around, you know. And um I think we are being generous to one another. And I I believe and what I think is so impressive about you is there um, are very few people who get to a level of success or comfort in life and decide, I want to become a novice again. Um, because that's actually very mm -hmm. humbling and very difficult for most people. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. remember, um, I was actually, I was writing The Art of Work and I, that's where I introduced the idea of the portfolio life for the first time. And I was talking to a gentleman who was a writer who had, he was in his 50s and this was several years ago now, um, and he was out of work, and his he, he was a writer and an editor, and he had gotten all of his business from publishers, children's publishers, referring business to him. And because of the financial crisis and what was changing in the publishing world, he just wasn't really getting much business anymore. And so I started mm -hmm. talking to him about it, and I was in my early 30s at this point, I think, so I was very keen to give lots of advice to older people that weren't asking me for <laughs> my <laughs> advice. Yeah. You know? uh -huh. um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but I said to him, I said, um, you know, um, are you on LinkedIn, right? Are you going to mm -hmm. conferences or meetups? Do you have a blog? Like he was bemoaning to me because he saw that I was a writer and he'd been doing this for 25, 30 years. 
And, mm-hmm. and he saw that I was having some success and he was asking me, you know, what, what should I do? And I said, well, have you considered going to local meetups? And he was like, ah, uh, I'm not very, I'm not very good with people. I was like, okay, cool. Um, you know, do you have a blog? Well, I don't really, I don't really do that. I just, you know, write books for people. I was like, okay. Um, how about LinkedIn or some sort of social network? Well, I don't really, I don't really get technology. And I was like, all right, good talking to you. Um, <laughs> and I, I realized, I mean, that that represents how most of us are, which is that uh, it's very difficult to start over. And mm-hmm. and he he needed to. His career was saying the days in which you're good at one thing and that's enough are over. I mean, the mm-hmm. world was sort of requiring him to become what I call a portfolio person. He was, um, he was turning it down. And so what were we doing? Well, I think most people, uh, we live in an age where most people want to be the master without ever willing to be the apprentice. And we were apprenticing ourselves under one mm-hmm. another's tutelage in new craft forms. And I find that very admirable uh, of you, especially because you really did master a, the craft of writing in ways that I think are exceptional and admirable and uh, that I continue to look up to. And, and so to go to a whole new, really to a whole new field and become an apprentice again and stick with it. I mean, this is what I think is so admirable about your journey is you really did figure it out. You really did figure out the online platform commerce thing and and create uh, a whole new business model for yourself in this new age where you were able to bring your skills uh, to market in a way that you didn't have to undermine any values or non-negotiables for you, which I think is um, incredible. Well, thank you. And I, t- I always tell people that I simply did everything Jeff Goins told me to do, but we'll, we'll get to that oh. in a minute. But it's true <laughs> what you didn't mention in this. And, and, I, and I agree about this networking thing. It's interesting when I was working at the New York Times, what I always dreamed of was working without a net. In other words, without that net under me of safety of the New York Times. But what I needed immediately was a network, was people, community. And you and I share that. But what you didn't mention in the lovely version you have of, of what we did for one another was the challenges that you set out for me. And I think uh, you, you you certainly mentioned that you offered them to the gentleman who turned them down. Um, when, when I was, when you invited me to come to speak to your then annual conference, Tribe Writers, and you, you challenged me to announce that I was going to launch my online classes. And I remember very well mm. getting up to give my talk and handing my iPad with its a PayPal card reader stuck in the side to one of your staff members. And and wow. when I got back um, at the end of the day, she handed me back my iPad and she had been taking registration for my classes. And it still chokes me wow. up to say this, but I remember staring at it. And my class, my brand new classes that hadn't just hadn't been announced and I announced them there at your conference were almost full. Mm. People had just wow. signed on. And I remember saying to myself, staring mm. at that, online site that this is what a dream come true looks like. And I think that's exactly the collaboration that networking can beget, is that with your skills and my skills together, we both got to a new place. And that's what's so Mm -hmm. interesting to me about what you do, about what I do. And so to do that, one of the words that we use a lot in the world that you and I live in is platform. 
and how mm-hmm. we support. I look at it as, you know, a way to support, but amid the jargon of writing, there's so much language, you know, show, don't tell, murder your darlings, and the word platform mm-hmm. befuddles everybody. Um, I was reading a piece in Forbes earlier today that said, quote, platform requires a focus on developing an unobstructed back and forth between authors and their readers with the authors, not the publishers controlling the flow. And, you know, this is something that you taught me, which is that this is the best time in the world for writers in, on many levels because we control yes. the content and the delivery system to the authors. You do this, you believe that this is done with a group. You call it a tribe. So I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about platform, but I want to talk about first the people in your world to whom you deliver and you, you have this relationship. So maybe the first thing to do is just to define what a tribe is or what you think of as community and, and the value of that tribe for a writer specifically. So a tribe is um, a relatively small group of people. I think this is the thing that surprised me most with Seth Godin's book, Tribes, is he says a tribe is this small group of people that you lead. And everybody has a tribe. Everybody has some group that they need to lead, but most of us aren't doing that. And I found my tribe by simply saying what needed to be said, right? Like uh, the thing that I felt like I needed to hear as a writer, as a creative I started saying it and other people Mm -hmm. started nodding and raising their hand and paying attention and I started to feel not so alone. And that's how I found this thing called my community. And it's such a supportive thing to have. I remember the moment in my life when I was in my 20s when a friend of mine said to me, what you need most now is to surround Mm. yourself with other people Mm -hmm. who write. And at the time, I didn't really understand that. I mean, I had left the New York Times to write a book, but what I didn't have was friends who were writers. And that shared community, that shared sense of, of exchanging ideas and supporting one another and being invested in each other's success is invaluable. And I, and, I, and I think we've been talking now for about seven years. I was trying to figure it out today. And as I said before, I literally have done everything you told me to do. And I tell people when I send them to you, now just do what he tells you. It's just really easy. Just do exactly what he tells you to do. It'll be fine. But I had an advantage when I came to you, having published four books with four big publishers, I knew how little they do to promote writer's work. And so you didn't have to tell me that. And I think a lot of people struggle with the idea that once they write it, it's still just in their computer or on the page. And they struggle so much with self-promotion. Why do you think this is? Maybe it's all creatives, but I only know it with writers. I heard somebody at a writer's conference say, I don't like self-promotion because I think it's narcissistic, right? Look at me, me, me. And I said to this person, Mm because I was teaching a seminar on platform at the time, I said, well, let me ask you this question. Um, What do you think is more Mm -hmm. narcissistic? The writer who pours her her blood, sweat, and tears into a great work, a blog, a book, whatever, and believes so much in it that she continues to work to promote it and get people to pay attention to it, continues to work to earn the trust and attention of other people because she understands the value of such things and doesn't take it for granted. Or the writer who writes something and just expects people to read it because she wrote it. <laughs> you said that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I did say that. I don't know that. Good for you. I don't know that I won her over that day, but yeah. um, 
I do, I do think it's a misunderstanding. I think people are lying. I think writers are lying when they say that's selfish, that's narcissistic, that's whatever. Um, I think it just uh, requires work and it's a different job and writers don't want to do a job other than writing. But this is part of the job of being a writer. It's not the art of being a writer. In the same way, this is why I like, it was very easy to you know, quote unquote work with you, give you advice and you just went and did it because you had been working as a writer. You understood that being a writer, working at the New York Times meant doing all these things that weren't writing. Now there was mm-hmm. the writing, but there was also like getting in the taxi cab and driving to this thing and knocking on the door and interrupting this person to get them to answer this one question. And when they didn't do that, picking up the telephone and calling a hundred people, like there's all this stuff mm-hmm. that you had to do and talking to your, your boss and, you know, going and getting coffee for somebody, maybe, you know, like all these things that aren't sitting down writing, being struck by the muse. Right. Mm-hmm. And you had been apprenticed in that, but many a writer never actually has a job as a writer and so they have this idea that they should just be writing all the time. Uh, and I never had that, that thought. So, you know, if I write an hour, two or three a day, holy cow, that's great. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's amazing. And the other six hours of the day are spent doing other things. Well, that's just part of the job. So I think that many writers are uncomfortable with self-promotion because it's another kind of job. And I think it's totally fine to just write and not promote it and not share it, not do any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Just don't yeah. expect your book to sell and don't expect people to pay attention. But that's totally fine if you just want to do it for art's sake. Yeah, it's true. I agree with you completely. And I've read all of your publications and I think you do a great job of explaining how to do this. You say in one of them that we have to choose ourselves and build our own audience. And that's it's all about finding, writing for, and connecting with your ideal readers. So how does one identify that ideal reader best, do you think? I think, I mean, you've got certain hacks, I think, things that are sort of... Um, Here's how to get to from point A to point B as quickly as possible. Not mm-hmm. a shortcut, but here's the most efficient way to do things. You're a very efficient person. I admire that about you. You told me once, I still believe this is true. We see it happen every day. One of the fastest ways for a writer to get a book deal is to write an article that gets national syndication and popularity. Um, yep. Because all of a sudden you've proven an idea, and you see that you, you see this happen to this day. Sometimes it happens on blogs, sometimes it happens on BuzzFeed, sometimes it happens in the New York Times, but it still happens today. Two of my four books came out of shorter pieces I wrote. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's brilliant when I'm working with an author on like a ghostwriting project. I say write an article first so that you can succinctly, clearly, and hopefully powerfully say this thing. Similarly. Um, if you want to build a tribe, if you want to see if there's an audience out there that resonates with what you have to say, I recommend that you write a manifesto. And a manifesto is a short, shareable document that clearly articulates your worldview. Uh, you know, so the Declaration of Independence is a manifesto. The Communist Manifesto is a, is a manifesto. Um, you know, any number of... Uh, political, religious, Martin Luther's 95 theses, um, anything like that, that very clearly draws a line in the sand and says, this is what I'm for, Uh, who's with me, who's against me, is a manifesto. And so if you want to start a movement, you want to find a community of people that resonate with you, write a manifesto. Could be an article, could be an ebook, 
it just needs to be something that can easily spread. That is the best way for you to see if anybody out there is interested in what you have to say. And mm-hmm. how I did that was I wrote an article that I then turned into uh, a, an ebook, a thousand word ebook, not very long. It was basically a, an article. Uh, and I wrote an article called Writers Don't Write to Get Published. Because, and that was a reminder to myself because for so long I was striving to get attention when really I, ju- I just needed to fall in love with the craft of writing and get good at writing before I expected <laughs> anybody to pay attention. And so I wrote yeah. that article and I turned it into yeah. a manifesto and people started paying attention. Well, let's talk about that, those early years. I've heard you live and online and I've read many times that you've written, uh, where where you've written that if you're not being yourself, you'll eventually burn out. So as a young writer, Mm. name me, oh, a half a dozen writers you were before you firmly found your own voice. Who who do you think you were imitating or who do you think you were trying out as before you became Jeff Goins? I I think that's a wonderful question. Who was I before I became me, Um, which is... Everyone. Did you have an Ernest you know, Hemingway a, period? Did you have a Fitzgerald period? Did you have a, <laughs> come on, fess up. I don't, yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, I don't think, I don't think I was ever good enough to have a Fitzgerald period. He's incredible. Um, yes, he I is. definitely, with the blog, I started, I, I tried to be Stephen Pressfield. I tried to be Seth Godin. I tried to be Michael Hyatt. You know, these were bloggers mm-hmm. and writers whom I admired. I definitely dabbled mm-hmm. in uh, Hemingway. Um, I love Anne Lamott. I probably borrowed some of her sort of, um, you know, uh, 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 memoir um, mannerisms in her writing. Mm-hmm. I, um, I I think that um, I tried a bunch of different things. I mean, those are definitely all authors that I remember trying to be like um, at various times. And I still do it, I realize. I, I don't think I can uh, not do it. Um, but what I find now is it's sort of like a rubber band. Like I'll read a new author and I'll really like the way they did something or, um, you know, I'll just read something and go, wow, I wish I could do that. And the next time I'm writing, I find myself trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I first resist it cause that feels unoriginal. And then I forget that how I got to where I am today is basically just by copying everybody that I know and then organizing it in my own little way. I like the, um, the historian Will Durant says that nothing is new except arrangement. You know, this is the whole <laughs> steal like an artist yes, idea. Yes, a lovely, lovely quote. Yeah. And if we go back to the whole concept of the portfolio life, I like the idea that our job as creative individuals is not to come up with something quote unquote original. Um, that's not entirely possible, right? We're all using the same source material, ideas, Joseph Campbell, monomyth, there's one story. Uh, and yet, nobody's exactly said it the way that you're going to say it, the way that I'm going mm-hmm. to say it. And so I am the organizer of the ideas. I'm the arranger, the composer, the one who's taking the notes and arranging them in a slightly different order. And so these days, I think of my job as a sort of the arranger of all the different influences that are living in me. Um, and then how do I bring those out depending on what I want to say and who the audience is. Yeah, I use the word annotation. You know, all the things I've ever read, tasted, Mm. felt, smelled, all the movies I've been to, all the plays I've read, all the plays I've seen, they're all in there. 
And then it's how yeah. and when you draw that gesture from Carson McCullers' play, Member of the Wedding, and how and when you draw that turn of phrase that Emily Dickinson does like nobody else does. And it's not yeah. plagiarism, it's annotation. If you And you must read, of course, we've talked about this for years. Yeah. And the other thing right. I think you have to have is discipline. And the, the discipline, we've talked a lot mm-hmm. about discipline. It's a, it's a huge part of finding one's voice is having the discipline to keep trying. And I think one of the things that I marvel at with you is you have these at least two voices that I know of. I mean, many voices we all do, but our writing voice, of course, is that expression of our very own selves. But you make a very good point, and you made this to me, that we need to master our copywriting voice as well. And that's the one where mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. writing to sell. And I think that mm-hmm. you are, you are as more than anyone I know, the proponent of shamelessly having that too, because you've got to sell it. So, mm. your 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 selling voice. You, I know you have a marketing background, um, but do you see them mm-hmm. as separate? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I see them as separate voices. What What about you? Yeah, um, I I think of them as different tones, right? The way ah. I uh-huh. speak to speak to my kids is not exactly the same way that I would speak to my wife or an adult friend. Um, I don't necessarily talk down to my kids, but I, I talk to them differently, you know, different level yep. of affection, different vocabulary. Um, and I think the same is true of compelling copy. You will see this, especially online, you'll see um, somebody who's, you know, maybe a, a, a quite good writer, and then they they clearly had some outside copywriter, right, sales copy, for something that they're selling, um, and I actually don't think that works very well. If what mm-hmm. you're selling is, you know, writing or some version of your message, because the copy itself is part of the product, um, but it is going to require um, a different tone of voice than, you know, say long form would require. Mm-hmm. It's just there's a different goal here. There's a different job. I'm not trying to necessarily. Um, entertain you or whisk you away to a different scene or a different world or a different state of mind. I'm trying to very quickly and efficiently uh, persuade you to buy something. So um, I do, I, I think probably how that worked for me is I started out as a copywriter, uh, working as a marketing director for a nonprofit. And that's how I got into blogging. And blogging lends itself well to copywriting. It's a shorter form version of, of writing for most people. And the attention span of the average internet user is lower than, say, somebody who's reading a newspaper or a magazine article. And so you're forced to write quick, punchy, quippy kind of things. And, uh, and so I cut my teeth on that with copywriting, then blogging. And then I got into writing books and longer form articles. And I began to appreciate good writing. And I think that's made me a better copywriter um, because I've sort of blended these two styles together in what I hope is a heartfelt, um, sincere, authentic manner. But um, yeah, I don't think of them as different voices because it's always me, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I don't have different voices, but I have a cold right now. So my voice sounds a little bit different. So this is my cold (laughs) voice, you know? Good. Uh, And when I get... When, when my kids know I'm excited, uh, uh, whether that excitement is anger or something else, um, they can tell in the tone of my voice. Um, and so I do think that we as writers um, need to be a little less precious with 
the tone of voice required for the task at hand. In the same way that, um, you know, the great writers did this quite well. You know, they could write a satire piece. Um, they could write a, a, a love poem. They could write a very, you know, serious play or novel. Um, I love that, you know, um, the classic authors and poets and playwrights were well-versed in writing lots of different kinds of work. Whereas these days we get so segmented by genre, you know, I think it's a little bit silly. Um, a great writer, um, you know, like a portfolio person should be multifaceted. Absolutely. I think so. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to have on Joanna Penn. And if there's ever a person who's got mm. a multifaceted, writes horror, writes yes. fantasy, writes fiction, writes how-to books for writers, it's it's Joanna. But just to, as we wrap this up, and, yes. and, I, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about where we're going to hear that voice of yours next. What are you working on now? What are you doing? And uh, what can we look forward to? Um, as you mentioned, I'm a ghost writer now. This is a newer venture. I've got, I think, close to a dozen books that I have worked on or am working on that will be coming out in the next year or two or maybe three, depending on publication. Mm-hmm. Um, I co-authored a book with a, a friend of mine named Grant mm-hmm. Baldwin called The Successful Speaker, which was a fun mm-hmm. little book on the uh, art and science of public speaking. And, um, and I'm working on a super fun book that I think you would think is interesting where I'm working with a, um, a classically trained internet marketer who is all about sales and um, direct response copy writing, right? And mm-hmm. he took everything that he, at, at, at age 50, he got Parkinson's and he took everything that he learned about persuasion and he applied it to himself because he oh. realized, I can persuade anybody to do anything basically. Why can I not persuade myself to live a better life? Oh and my. And getting Parkinson, yeah, yeah, and it's powerful. And getting Parkinson's was this inciting incident in his life where he realized I don't have, aside from, from Parkinson's, it was a wake-up call, um, but I don't have the kind of life that I want. And if I believe in the power of persuasion, why can't I persuade myself? And that's what the book is about. Well, he's in the right hands. Thank you, my friend. As ever, uh, it's been a joy to speak with you. And as ever, I now have uh, more work to go do and just to be, just to go do what you told me to do. So I, I will, I promise. Be well. Thank you. It's my pleasure. The writer is Jeff Goins. Get his books, Real Artists Don't Starve, wherever books are sold. Listen to his podcast, The Portfolio Life, wherever you get your podcasts. And visit him online at goinswriter.com. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. Subscribe wherever podcasts are available. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. 